Last week on August 4th, shortly after 6 p.m., there was a huge explosion in the city of Beirut in Lebanon. The blast came from the city's main port, and it was so strong that it was felt 150 miles away in Cyprus. Then, a second blast sent a huge mushroom cloud up over the city. Nothing prepared them for this. A shockwave so strong, so vast, many who survived say they thought doomsday had arrived. The blast has been linked to a long-neglected stash of potentially explosive chemicals. Most of the buildings near the port were destroyed or damaged by the explosion. That includes the city's main grain silo, which has caused fears about a major wheat shortage in the next few weeks. I've seen war, I've filmed war, but it took 30 days to do the same destruction. We had it in one explosion. In before and after photos of the blast, you can see the city's entire port one moment and a 400-foot-wide crater in the next. More than 170 people have been killed. Over 6,000 have been injured, and hundreds of thousands are now homeless. And this is all happening in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. So then we went to the hospital. Hospitals couldn't take us. There were like no rooms anymore, nothing. We went to another hospital outside of the city and it was like people forgot about corona. We were just bleeding. Everyone was bleeding. We couldn't move in the hospital. Lebanon now has over 7,000 coronavirus cases and over 80 deaths. Compared to how other countries are doing, especially the United States, that doesn't seem like much at first glance. But it's important to know that this blast, and even the pandemic, is part of a long chain of devastating events that have crippled the country. Before any of this happened, Lebanon was already in the midst of political turmoil and an economic crisis that could cause nearly half the population to fall below the poverty line. Violent protests erupting in the Lebanese capital, and we're getting reports of injuries. People there are visibly outraged, and they're blaming their own government, accusing it of negligence. The morning before the blast, the country's main public hospital, where coronavirus patients were being treated, had announced that it was already approaching full capacity. The city was about to go on another lockdown as a result of a recent surge in cases. Hours later, the explosion sent thousands of people into Beirut's hospitals, and five of those hospitals were heavily damaged by the blast. In this episode, I speak with my colleague, CNN correspondent Ben Wiedemann, who's based in our bureau in Beirut. We talked about the devastating loss from the blast and the mounting fear and uncertainty in a city that's also trying to keep a pandemic at bay. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. And this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. Ben Wiedemann, thank, thank you so much for, for joining us. Let me, let me just ask, first of all, how are you doing? Yeah, I, I was in the Bureau when the blast happened. Fortunately, I was in the one of our three rooms with big windows where the windows didn't shatter, but our Bureau was severely damaged. The studio just sort of completely turned upside down. I, I, I obviously want to talk about the, the pandemic, but I'm just curious. You're in the Bureau. You hear a large explosion like this. What's the first thing you think of and what do you immediately do? 
Well, because the blast itself was preceded by just a second or so by what felt like an earthquake. So I got down, was going to go under my desk because I thought that's the thing to do in an earthquake. At the moment, I, you know, this is Lebanon. We've had many wars in the last few decades. So my assumption was this was not an accident, that this was an act of war or terrorism or something. But what made this different from all the other wars I've experienced here in Lebanon was just the sheer, sheer size of the explosion. It was just so big. And, you know, all the buildings around us, the glass just shattered and fell into the street. Well, Ben, I mean, you know, we were all thinking about you and your, your team. And, I mean, you've been through a lot, man. I'm just glad you're, you're okay. I, I, I wonder if we could just take a step back for a moment and, and just talk about Beirut before either of these things happened. What was Beirut like several months ago before the world had even heard of COVID-19? You know, Be- Beirut, you know, recently, in, in the last seven or eight months, has been a place of great tumult because last October, massive street demonstrations began uh, in protest over government corruption and, and a failing economy. That's, that's sort of the not-too-distant past. But Beirut is probably one of the most cosmopolitan cities on Earth. This is a city that has always looked to the outside world. There are big Lebanese communities in West Africa, in South America, in North America. Many people here speak multiple languages. And people are very well aware of what's going on in the world. So it's a very sophisticated place with a very broad world view. So the country is is dealing with this tumult, as you said, this economic turmoil, and and then the coronavirus pandemic hits. February 21st is when Lebanon reports its first coronavirus infection. And how does the country deal with the pandemic, Ben? Well, initially, when people saw what was going on, for instance, in Italy and in China, the reaction was almost before the government imposed a lockdown, a total lockdown on the 15th of March, there were already people wearing masks, already people sort of working from home if they could, uh, because you know there's a great respect for the older generation here, and therefore nobody wanted to endanger their uh, elderly relatives. Now, the lockdown was in effect for several weeks, and for the most part here in Beirut, it was respected. And certainly in the first few months, the number of cases was relatively low and was not increasing at a particularly alarming rate. But as of late, that picture has changed. Uh, After weeks and weeks of lockdown, people simply got fed up. And you have the additional problem here of with the collapse of the economy and the the local currency losing as much as 70 to 80 percent of its value against the dollar and the prices skyrocketing, that people, many people said, look, there's a small chance statistically that I can get coronavirus and an even smaller chance that I will die from it. There's a high probability, however, if I can't make a living, I can't feed my family. And so many people had to make that hard decision 
that regardless of the risks of coronavirus, that they had to go out, had to work, had to find some a means to support themselves and their families and coronavirus be damned. So you talk about a, a, a sort of a total lockdown declared by the government on March 15th, and it, it goes under lockdown for just over two months. W- what are the economic ramifications? The economic decline was absolutely in your face now. Just rows of stores have been shut because they've gone out of business. What you see now in Beirut, it's not uncommon to see people, even the elderly, rummaging through garbage tips for scraps of food. Um, You see a lot more beggars on the street. Having said that, you know, the Lebanese have been through 15 years of civil war, multiple wars with Israel, economic turmoil and trouble in the past. And and therefore, they're very good with coping mechanisms. They always sort of have something in reserve for this sort of event. Now, the problem with this is the current situation in Lebanon, it's a perfect storm of economic collapse, coronavirus, and of course, this latest catastrophe in the port of Beirut. So it's really just been one catastrophe after another. The hospitals in, in Beirut in particular, you know, as I mentioned, I've had a chance to spend some time there over the years, and some of the hospitals are actually quite extraordinary. How would you say the hospitals were handling and coping with this virus? Was, was there enough supplies and personal protective equipment and things like that? Well, we've visited the main hospital in Beirut that deals with coronavirus. That's the Rafik Hariri University Hospital, which is a state hospital. They were managing as well as they could under the circumstances. The head of the hospital, uh, Dr. Firas Abyad, an amazing man, told us that, for instance, there have been these really long power cuts here in Beirut, sometimes 20 hours a day. He told us that their hospital had budgeted for three hours a day of power cuts. So after a few days, they'd used up their entire month's supply of fuel to run their generators. That hospital and others have done an amazing job given the shortages of hard currency, uh, shortages of equipment, uh, but somehow they managed. Now, the problem is when Tuesday's blast happened, it happened in an area not far from where there are a variety of other hospitals that are treating coronavirus patients. Some one of those hospitals was completely knocked out of commission, and many of the others were overwhelmed with the injured. And the problem is, of course, that over the last two weeks, more than two weeks, we've seen a growing number of new cases. So you have the double blow of increased cases and reduced capacity because of the blast in Beirut's port. So what do the hospitals look like? We were in that hospital, the Rafik Hariri Hospital, just the other day. And I can tell you, it looked fine. I mean, the the staff had obviously been through hell the night of the uh, blast, but they, they carry on. And I'm impressed by their dedication and sort of single-minded focus on dealing with coronavirus and hundreds and hundreds of injured people flooding the hospitals all at once. I spoke to a friend of mine who's a cardiologist. He worked during the Civil War. He worked during the Israeli invasion in 1982, the 2006 Israel-Lebanon War. He said in all those years, 
He'd never experienced the flood of hundreds of people showing up at his hospital all at once. But as I said, the hospitals are now, those that are able to operate, are dealing with their coronavirus cases, but they're on the edge of the abyss. If you walk around right now, what does it look like to people? Well, when you go to the areas that were most badly affected by the explosion, it's teeming with people, with young volunteers and older volunteers as well, who've brought brooms and shovels and are basically knocking on people's doors, offering to help clean people's homes. And others are out on the streets dressing wounds, you know, changing bandages that need to be changed, handing out sandwiches and water. It's an incredible, spontaneous effort by ordinary people in those areas. But what's notable in all of this is the absence of the state, the government. We were out in one of those neighborhoods yesterday, and uh, the only presence of the state were some members of the gendarme, who uh, were sitting on chairs in the shade, drinking tea and smoking cigarettes. So there's a lot of resentment at a government that doesn't seem to have really understood the need to act and act quickly to help people. We are in the middle of a pandemic. So you have the situation where people are being cared for in the way that you're describing, you know, bandaging people up in the streets. Uh, is the pretense of, of physical distancing and masking and doing all the things to try and decrease the spread of the virus, are, are those things still happening there in the aftermath of this explosion? I, I have to say that the blast sort of blew everything out of everybody's minds temporarily in terms of coronavirus. We were actually, when the blast went off, we were in the middle of a sort of new partial lockdown, but everybody forgot about that when, when the explosion went off. And, and, you know, it's worth noting, for instance, that more than 160 people were killed in the blast, and so far, the total number of deaths from coronavirus is exactly ha half of that, just 80. Right, right. It's sometimes tough to give the, the, the perspective that way, and, and, I, and I completely hear what you're saying. I mean, you know, one problem doesn't obviate the other, but you can understand in the midst of an explosion like this that the, the priorities would change. I'm just wondering, you know, what, what is the mood like there? You know, are people optimistic? Certainly when you look at the entirety of the problems Lebanon is facing, it's hard to be uh, optimistic. On the other hand, when you walk down the neighborhoods and you see how many people have come out, how many people are donating their time, their sweat, their money to help others, it does give you reason to be optimistic that somehow Lebanon will pass through this current difficult phase that people, despite everything, when you talk to them, they have a sense of humor. Uh, they can still uh, laugh and make jokes about what a lousy government this is. And as I said, they've been through a lot here. And ultimately, I do have faith that maybe not in the next month or two, maybe not even in next year, but the Lebanese people will come out of this. Well, Ben, 
Thank you very much. Uh, take care of yourself, brother. We'll be thinking about you. Okay, thank you very much, Sanjay. Always a pleasure. The loss that the people in Beirut face might seem insurmountable. The country as a whole has seen so much hardship even before the blast, even before the pandemic. But what Ben said about people helping each other, volunteering both their time and their money, and the outpouring of support from the rest of the world, that's what gives me hope. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.